This morning, we begin to examine how the law of God, the Ten Commandments that we've been dealing with the past week, are to be applied in practice. And our first lecture, of course, deals with the law of God and personal devotion. And then after that, we'll go on to deal with how the law of God functions in the family context, third, how it functions in the church, fourth, how it functions in education, and finally, and perhaps appropriately, just before the polls close here in New Zealand tonight, how the law of God should function in politics. First then, the law of God and personal devotion. I think that one of the best passages of the Bible that speak to this matter, the law of God, in our personal devotions is the whole of Psalm 119. In that psalm we see David in his personal devotion pray to Almighty God and the entire prayer as you might have noticed is full of references to God's law, God's way, God's commandments, God's statutes uh, and God's ordinances, all of which are uh, either the Ten Commandments or concrete applications of those Ten Commandments in politics, uh, in civil affairs, or in religious ceremonies. Perhaps we can begin by reading a passage from Psalm 119 and uh, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. And then, verse 35, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Or, as you may perhaps know, that him which was derived from Psalm 119 summarizes the whole psalm very well oh how love I thy law it is my meditation night and day in the second place uh, we may just wish to turn very briefly to Psalm number one Psalm number one it starts off in the negative in the first verse and then moves to the positive in the second verse. Verse 1 negatively says, Blessed is the man that walketh not 
in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, and then positively in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. We need to ask ourselves, each one of us, as we do our personal devotions each day, better still, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, and I'm not referring now to family devotions, that's something different. I'm referring to our personal devotions, each one of us, all alone, individually, uh, in quietness, separated from all other people as we come before the face of the Lord. We need to ask ourselves about the extent to which the law of God figures in our personal devotions. The psalmist says that the blessed man has a delight in the law of the Lord and in God's law the blessed man meditates day and night at the beginning of each day and at the advent of each night he meditates in the law of the Lord or as David says in Psalm 119 oh how love I thy law it is my meditation night and day now having said that we must immediately go on to say that the law of God God's law the Ten Commandments as applied uh, in practice uh, is not the same as Almighty God we should not confuse God's law with God himself this is an important point that we need to be aware of and in speaking to antinomians who dislike uh, or who are ignorant of or who hate the law of God I think that we need to go out of our way to make this apparent to them we do not worship God's law we worship the God whose law it is and we keep God's law as best we can as saved sinners because it is the law of the God who made us and the God who saves us. Uh, Calvin, uh, in his works, makes the important statement, Deus legibus salutus, sed non ex lex, which, translated from the Latin, means, God is free from the law, but he is not against the law God is free from the law but he is not against the law you see God is above the law God is not bound by his laws in fact he made his laws and he made his laws to govern the behavior not of himself but of his creatures which when he made them he put under the law which he had made so that his creatures uh, should obey those laws and God made a variety of laws he made physical laws that all uh, physical creatures uh, from needles to haystacks uh, are subject to the law of gravity for example equally affects human beings who leap off skyscrapers as well as um, um, rocks that fall into wells what uh, goes up must come down the law of gravity but God is above the law of gravity God existed before he made a law of gravity I suppose we can in fact say in the beginning of time the triune God Father, Son and Spirit who had existed from all eternity and who of course will continue to exist forever in the beginning of time God created laws and then he created things which he subjugated to those laws namely the universe and the contents of the universe as described in Genesis 1 and 2 but God himself 
is above the laws. He was there before he made any laws to govern the behavior of the things that he subjects to the laws, including man as the last and the most important of all of God's creatures. However, we should not think that God is arbitrary in the kind of laws that he laid down to govern the behavior of his universe and the various categories of creatures in his universe. No. Every law that God made is good. Every law that God made is perfect, or I should say was before the fall, and through God's common grace, if you want to call it that, still is after the fall. And every law of God had purpose, was economic in the sense that there are not more laws that God made than he needs for the providential unfolding of his universe. Um, and each law which our God gave us answers to the purpose for which it was given. But more, although God was before all law and is even now above all law, the various laws that God has laid down to govern the behavior of angels, minerals, plants, animals, and human beings, the Ten Commandments being some of the central laws God has given to govern the behavior of human beings, all of these laws, though not part of God, do reflect something of the nature of God. Now, when you look at the natural laws, such as the law of gravity, you can see in the law of gravity a reflection of God's faithfulness. Just as faithfully as uh, objects are drawn toward the earth, equally faithfully does the God who created the law of gravity govern the universe and is his word absolutely faithful. You can depend on it. You can trust in it. And when you come to the Ten Commandments, uh, which are those aspects of God's laws which he lays down to govern the behavior of human beings, you will find if you study the Ten Commandments that each one of the Ten Commandments reflects a quality in God himself. For example, the First Commandment. Welcome. First Commandment. Um, thou shalt have no other gods before me uh, is clearly uh, a commandment dealing with the exclusiveness of God there is none other alongside of him and of course there was no other God alongside of God in all of the eternities past before creation nor is there any other God alongside of, of our triune Jehovah today either and then the second commandment uh, requiring us uh, in worshipping the one true God to worship him in a spiritual way and not by trying to make pictures of him or sculptures of him or statues or whatever this tells us something of the spirituality of God God does not have a body like we do you cannot photograph God uh, um, the three persons of the Trinity did not photograph or sculpture images of one another in all of the eternities past before Genesis 1 verse 1 as Jesus said to the woman at the well God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth and then to the third commandment dealing with the name of God that we are to treat the name of God with, uh, with um, respect tells us something about the elevation I should say the elevatedness, the majesty of the name of our God. And in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, a person's whole personality and characteristics are reflected in the name that he has. And so it is then that the name of God, uh, the name Jehovah from all eternity, or Yahweh as some would say, uh, really seems to mean the one who always was from all eternity, the one who is now, the one who always shall be. And the word Elohim is a plural form, as we pointed out before, seems to imply a multiplicity of persons within the deity. 
three persons, it would seem, uh, from comparing its first occurrence in Scripture in the first verse of the Bible with the subsequent verses even in that uh, same chapter. Um, and so this word Elohim uh, seems to refer to three persons, each of whom is lifted up, uh, is exalted. And so we see that in the very names of God we find an expression of his characteristics. His name is important. And then when you move on to the fourth commandment, uh, the Sabbath commandment, six days shalt thou labor, uh, but the seventh day is the day of rest. You see too how this reflects qualities in God. Because God before creation was not a lazy God, a deus otiosus, a God who did nothing and just lounged around in outer space. No, even then before creation he was replete with energy. Uh, loving communications energetically broadcast between the three persons of the Trinity backward and forward to one another from all eternity past uh, full of the, of the uh, work of his intra and inter-Trinitarian counsel between the three persons of the Trinity uh, his providential control over whatever would come to pass in the universe when he created it his sovereign decision to ex-nihilate or to bring into being and then to maintain this particular very good universe to the exclusion of all of the billions and zillions of other potential universes which would also all have been very good. It blows your mind when you consider the tremendous energy, uh, quote, labors, unquote, in God before creation. And yet... And yet, it was a restful kind of labor, because God was not in time and in space actually making things until after Genesis 1 verse 1. It is only starting at Genesis 1 verse 1, and some would say uh, only from Genesis 1 verse 3, in fact, that God started working in time for six days, and after that rested on the seventh day. So you see then how the Sabbath commandment as man is required to keep it really does reflect qualities in God himself. And then when you pass on to the next commandment the, the uh, fifth commandment honor thy father and thy mother teaching the principle of respect for other people be they superiors, inferiors or equals as our catechism teaches when you apply that to the Trinity before creation, the three persons who of course are co-equals of one another, uh, corresponding to the relationship between brothers and sisters within an earthly family as a human reflection of that intra-Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son and Spirit, you can understand to some extent uh, how the three persons of the Trinity respected and cooperated with one another from all eternity past. And then when you look at the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, which uh, is couched, as indeed are most of the commandments, in a negative fashion. And when you realize from the study of scripture that that implies uh, oppositely uh, the contrapolar um, positive um, virtue, namely, thou shalt do everything in thy power to preserve life, and when you realize that God is life, in him is life, uh, and he was the light of the world, and he is the source of all life, and that he is the powerhouse of all life from which all other forms of created life, plant life, uh, atomic particle life uh, within atoms, um, human life, doggy life, angel life, whatever, are but dependent uh, reflections, you realize that uh, what it must be to be the living God to some extent. In him is life, underived life. And then when you pass on to the seventh commandment, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, when you realize that positively 
this requires us to be pure in our associations with one another, you realize how this reflects something of the purity of our God. He who is pure being, he who is pure light, uh, he in fact who inhabits a light that man cannot approach unto. He, as Habakkuk tells us, who is too pure that we uh, should approach uh, unto him. Um, or too pure that he can ever look on sinful man in his sins with approval. You understand how the seventh commandment reflects something of the purity of God. And then the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, which as we saw two nights ago, um, requires us to uh, accumulate and to maintain our own private property and not allow other people or any rapacious state to steal it from us, such as by way of overtaxation, for example, uh, tells us something of the private property within God, the private property of fatherhood, which the Father had, but which the Son and the Spirit did not have and do not have, the private property of sonship, which the Son has, uh, which the Father and the Spirit do not have, the private property of spiration or procession, which the Holy Spirit has, which the Father and the Son do not have, and that uh, they are each one happy for the other two persons of the Trinity, always have been happy, always will be happy, uh, for the other two persons of the Trinity to possess that private property which uh, the other person himself does not possess. We begin to understand that private property is not something that came into being as a result of the fall of man. It is not uh, 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 an attribute of selfish man. It is, if anything, an attribute of Almighty God himself, which we are required to reflect in our human life as much as the creature can, of course, reflect a divine attribute. And surely all of these things can be abused, but what we are required to do as image bearers of God, or better as images of God, is to reflect in a human way all that God is in himself, uh, to reflect in a small scale way, as much as we are able, all of these moral qualities of Almighty God. And then the ninth commandment, which we dealt with last night, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, couched negatively, we saw last night also implies oppositely uh, and positively that we are to speak the truth and to be truthful at all times. Well now, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Uh, there is a word in God, the second person of the Trinity, sustained by the spirit of truth that wells up from the Father who speaks truth at all times, uh, which shows us that God is truth. Truth is not just something God has. God is truth. And that we as God's images are to reflect that truth in our conscious keeping of the ninth commandment. And then the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, we saw last night, also means positively we shall be content with what we have. We shall be beatific uh, with what we have. And God, before the foundation of the world, was content with what he had. God did not create the universe because he needed it, because there was some lack in God, uh, but for reasons that uh, we cannot um, thoroughly understand, it pleased God to create this universe not to increase his own um, being, not to make him more contented uh, than what he was, uh, but to bring this universe into being and to create man really to bring honor and glory to himself. Not that he needed honor and glory to be brought to himself. And that, of course, is one of the most difficult of all of the problems in theology. I think why God would even want to create a universe or man in the universe seeing he doesn't need any one of us for one second. But he did. And the only answer we can come to is for his glory, for purposes best known to himself, but not because he needed it. Because Isaiah tells us very clearly that God doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't need our religious dedication, seeing he is the one who gives breath and health and wealth to every one of us. He does not dwell in temples as if he needs to be served with human hands. He is um, sovereign. He has, has uh, aseitas, uh, independence, um, uh, the beatific being in himself that needs no augmentation by anything else. So then, we see that each one of these Ten Commandments, as we attempt as God's human creatures to obey them, out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us, each one of these Ten Commandments really, in an, a non-exhaustive but in a sufficient way, reflects something of God's being and glory, which we as mirrors that God has made are to reflect further by keeping the law of God. Now then, uh, my statement a little earlier was, we must never worship God's holy law, because God's holy law really is a creature that God made. In fact, it's the first creature that God made. We could perhaps re-paraphrase Genesis 1 verse 1 to read something like this. In the beginning, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created creation, namely, the first creature, all of his laws. The second creatures, the things, plants, um, animals, and humans, which would obey those laws within the context of the heaven and the earth. And so we do not worship God's law. To confuse God with his law is, of course, very erroneous. On the other hand, as I've just been immediately pointing out, we need to see that the laws of God do reflect in a wonderful, though a creaturely way, something of the very essence of God himself. So that if we defy God's laws, if we say with our antinomian friends, free from the law, oh happy condition, I'll sin all I want because there's always remission, if we have that attitude, we really are uh, an insult to our creator. Because not only has our Creator told us to obey His laws, but as I've just recently pointed out, each one of those laws does indeed reflect something of the attributes of God Himself. So that although it's true that we're saved by God and not by our keeping of God's law, true as that is, it's also true that having been saved by our God, we are to show our gratitude to that God by obeying him and as much as we can able to in the power of the Holy Spirit through the grace of God uh, doing what he commands namely subjecting ourselves more and more consciously to his holy law in all that we do someone once said to me you know the trouble with you Dr. Lee and people like you is you don't really believe in God and you, least of all, do you believe in the Holy Spirit. It's the, whole of, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies the Christian. It's not the law that sanctifies the Christian. Well, I've thought a great deal about that. And uh, I, I, I appreciate the, um, the attempt uh, to correct me. And, of course, we, we all need correction. And I, I must agree with that observation, which you'll generally get from uh, uh, higher life people and particularly today from uh, Pentecostalists and Neo-Pentecostalists I think they're absolutely right that it is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies the Christian and certainly it is not the law uh, that is the uh, original sanctifier of the Christian I, I have to agree of course sanctification is performed in us by a living person person of God, the Holy Spirit alone. That's perfectly true. However, I think what we need to appreciate is that, and what we need to investigate is the way in which the Holy Spirit sanctifies the Christian. Uh, admitting, as uh, I think we certainly must, that it's only the Holy Ghost that sanctifies the converted Christian, 
we must now ask, well, how does the Holy Spirit sanctify a converted Christian? And it's my contention that when you ask that question, uh, there is no escape from the use of the law as the tool of the Holy Spirit through which he, the Holy Spirit, sanctifies the Christian both individually uh, and in his family circle and in his church life and indeed uh, even in his social and political lives. So I would like for us to consider that formulation. We're sanctified solely by the Holy Spirit through the means that the Holy Spirit has given us for our sanctification. Now, having said that, I'm not going to claim that the law, the Ten Commandments, is the only tool which the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. I suppose, theoretically, it would be possible for the Holy Spirit to sanctify us directly without utilizing any created means whatsoever as tools through which he does sanctify us. However, a moment's reflection, I think, will show that inasmuch as we are creatures with created bodies and created souls and eyes and ears and so forth, that it's very appropriate that the Holy Spirit, who is pure spirit and who uh, is not material in any way at all as we are, would indeed use uh, means, tools, weapons, uh, especially from the physical and the material realm, to bring about the sanctification of his children. And so it is that we would all agree the Holy Spirit uses the sacraments to sanctify us. If you are a Christian but you desire to become a more holy Christian than you are, which of course should be the desire of every one of us, well then, with some degree of frequency, uh, I would suggest you and I need to use the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, because the Holy Spirit, as it were, uh, institutes through Christ uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, sets apart the humble creatures of bread and wine in a special way, and conjoins himself uh, to the sanctified use of that bread and wine in such a way that he, the Holy Spirit, strengthens us and makes us even more spiritual people than he has already made us precisely by using the bread and the wine at the Lord's table. And the same would apply to baptism. And even more so, I would suggest, the same applies to regular Bible study. It might be possible to be a Christian without ever reading your Bible. I think it is. Um, a moment's reflection on uh, the status of such as die in infancy would, I think, suggest this. If at least some of those who die in infancy go to heaven, which I think the Word of God clearly teaches, and if none of them that die in infancy and go to heaven have read the Bible before they die, and none of them have, uh, then we will see that the Holy Spirit can sanctify people even without uh, using of the Bible. And yet having said that, I don't think there's any way that a person who has been predestinated not to die in infancy, uh, but to grow up and to become an adult and a Christian, can really develop a mature Christian faith without regular Bible study. And the more regular our Bible study, the greater the degree of our dedication to the Lord. Well, now here again, when we love the Bible, and when we study it, and when we believe its blessed pages, we are certainly not worshipping the Bible as if the Bible were Almighty God. Just as when we willingly study the law of God and place ourselves under the law of God and seek to obey the law of God, we're not in any way suggesting that the law of God is God, but we are showing our love of the God who gave us the law, we are showing our love of the God that gave us the Bible by obeying the law and by reading, understanding and obeying the Bible as best we can, you see. So the Bible too, uh, and even those parts of the Bible that cover subjects other than the law of God, 
is a tool with many little tools in the hand of the Holy Spirit who breathed into the pages of Scripture and spiritized this creature, uh, inspirited rather, in such a way that this book is one of the most useful of all tools which the Holy Spirit uses to bring about the sanctification of his people. So then my statement here is that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is not the only tool which the Holy Spirit uses in the life of the individual believer to sanctify the believer. The Spirit also uses the written word, the Bible. He also uses the visible sacraments. And of course, in a sense, the same Spirit also uses everything in the universe. The universe as a whole, uh, the ice, we're told in, in the book of Job that it's the Holy Spirit that causes water to freeze into ice. It's quite a statement. The Holy Spirit garnishes the heavens. When you next look up at the constellations at, on, a, on a starry, clear night, be reminded that it's the Holy Ghost who has garnished those heavens, put the constellations into the format uh, in which you see them from this earth. Uh, the Spirit of God is the one, Psalm 104, who um, causes the grass to grow. It's something to remember every, every spring that comes round, as the little shoots come out and as the roses begin to bud. This happens through an action of the Holy Spirit. And these two are tools that God uses to sanctify us. Um, o Lord, my God, when I with awesome wonder consider all thy hands hath made I see the moon and hear the mighty thunder thy power throughout the universe displayed then sings my soul my saviour God to thee how great thou art how great thou art sure because in all of these things the spirit reveals his holiness his purity his power and if we are God's children and read the stars and the rosebuds and the thunder we see, hear, smell as it were the love of the Spirit for his children and so it shouldn't surprise us that in the Ten Commandments too uh, the Spirit gives us a very valuable tool for our sanctification now when we look at the Ten Commandments we see first that it was the Holy Spirit who himself carved these Ten Commandments onto the tablets of stone. We're told God used the finger of God to carve the Ten Commandments onto the two tablets of stone on top of Mount Sinai. The Lord Jesus in the Gospel seems to regard this expression, the finger of God, as equivalent to the Holy Spirit. And so the thought is that it's the Spirit of God himself that came down on Mount Sinai and engrafted these ten principles reflecting his own glory into the hearts, uh, pardon, into the, um, uh, the tablets of stone. But now the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are living letters of the Lord and that uh, the Spirit of God has been writing on the fleshly tablets of our heart not uh, carving and chiseling uh, pieces out of our stony hearts as it were nor writing uh, this letter on our hearts with pen and ink but with the spirit of the living God and then at the end of that chapter uh, he, he makes the statement God is spirit and accordingly uh, as we behold the Lord and this right after the statement of Moses coming down off the mountain with the tablets of stone with a shining face uh, that as we behold our God we ourselves are thereby transformed from glory unto glory as by the Lord who is the spirit so then uh, as Hebrews chapter 8 and again Hebrews chapter 10 tells us uh, the New Testament involves the carving of the law of God by the Holy Spirit onto the heart of the born-again Christian. And when you see that, you realize that the Ten Commandments given on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai 
is not just something for a different previous dispensation for the Jewish people which really has no permanent value. No. It is a phase in the development of God coming to his people. Uh, he came to his people more intimately at the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. But then on the day of Pentecost and thereafter, this same triune God comes to his people still more intimately in the spirit of God, in the paraclete, God in us. And as God is in us, and as God the Spirit dwells in our heart, he the Spirit who gave the law on Mount Sinai writes and inscribes these ten words, these ten principles into our very heart. This same Spirit gave us ten digits on our hands, ten toes on our feet, and he, the same Spirit, again, the author of the decimal system, brings out the ten principles of morality in our heart to make us well-rounded, sanctified, holy people. Well now, what has this got to do with our personal devotions, you may ask? It's got everything to do with our personal devotions. Because if we spurn God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our devotions, then our devotions merely degenerate into something purely mechanical. Dear God, bless Mom, Dad, the dog, Uncle Sam, and, and Aunt Jemima's cat. For Jesus' sake, Amen. That's not devotion. But when we come to God every morning and every evening in the privacy of our room with not even other members of our family present, we get with them later at family worship. I'm talking now about personal devotions. We stand, Coram Deo, as Calvin said, in the presence of God, the triune God, the God in whose name we've been baptized, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have that Father awesomely above us, God above us, and yet pitying us and loving us as a father pities his children. And we direct our prayers to God the Father, and we pray that he may grant our prayers in the name of God the Son. And when praying, we should be praying in the power of God the Holy Spirit. But our whole prayer needs to be a prayer that is in agreement with the revelation of this triune God, which he has given us in nature, in conscience, in history, but especially since the fall in the Bible. And the Bible, of course, is not a book that's against nature or against history. The Bible is a book which reflects nature and reflects history and gives the corrective perspective uh, from which, after the fall, we need to view nature and history. And that's why the Bible is so important. Well, now, if we are going to go through our devotions to our triune God and do it in a way that's acceptable to him, it is so necessary for us to be stimulated by this spirit-filled book, the Holy Bible. And that's why it's such a wonderful thing to read the Word of God in our devotions before we pray to Him. So that when we do pray to Him after reading the Word of God, it is as Bible-motivated people that we then pray to God. And you see, if we understand that this book, this Bible is full of the breath of God, that the Spirit of God has breathed into its pages like sweet perfume, as it were. We need to sniff it and to inhale great gulps of its uh, luscious scent uh, before we come to God, bringing ourselves to him as living sacrifices so that the aroma of our inspirited lives can then go up in our prayers into the nostrils of the Lord God of hosts. And when he smells us, he doesn't smell a stinking, decomposing, sinful stench. He smells something that is beautiful and attractive, and he is satisfied. This is the implication of the Hebrew at the very end of uh, Genesis chapter 8 when Noah and his family went out of the ark you remember and they brought a sacrifice to God and the aroma of that sacrifice roasting meat went up into the nostrils of God 
and he was satisfied he was satisfied and of course it was at Calvary when the spirit filled Jesus Christ was roasted on the cross with the wrath of God as a well done perfect lamb seasoned with sauce and with herbs came up into the nostrils of almighty God as a living sacrifice and Jehovah was satisfied so we do need to be really spiritual spirit filled people as we serve God but as we look into our own souls we, we, we know that there is nothing there of itself that is in any way attractive to God it brings us in our barrenness and our emptiness to our God uh, with the ongoing plea to God to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we may keep on offering ourselves up to God as living sacrifices so that we may keep on being not conformed to the world but keep on being transformed back to the image of God which after all is our reasonable religion which is what we owe this God by way of our religious devotions for all that he has done for us and now the question is how do we keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit as children of God is this an emotional matter is it a matter of pleading that God will enable us to perform miracles by techniques that we've never learned before no not as I understand the Bible the very way in which we are to keep on being filled with the Spirit according to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is set out for us in that chapter do not keep on being filled up with wine wherein is lasciviousness but do keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit by keeping on praising the Lord in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual psalms notice that psalms are mentioned first and if you study the book of psalms and we only looked at psalm 115 and psalm 1 this morning you will see that the psalms are full of the law of God over and over and over again and law is subjection by man the creature to the revealed will of God and this idea of subjection as the manner in which we are to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit is further stated wives keep on subjecting yourselves to your husbands you see that's the fifth commandment isn't it and husbands keep on loving your wives well, that's the seventh commandment be faithful to your wife and the sixth commandment don't kill your wife but do everything you can to keep your wife alive like Christ gave himself for his bride and it also means children keep on submitting yourselves uh, to your parents Ephesians chapter 6 this is the first commandment with a promise honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and it means employees keep on submitting yourself to your employers don't pilfer on the job thou shalt not steal do a good day's work don't threaten a strike every five minutes or during every tea break and it means employers do what you can to create uh, a pleasant environment in which your employees work and so on we begin to see that the way of the spirit the way of walking in the spirit is the way of submission even in our personal devotions to the God of the Spirit uh, to, the, to the Spirit of God rather and to the law of our God and the law of the Spirit and so we need to ask ourselves as we do our Bible study and our personal devotions we need to ask ourselves when right after that we get down on our knees all alone and worship the Father, Son and Spirit Lord teach me to subject myself more than ever before to your holy law open my heart that I may see the wonders of your law show me dear God in this problem I'm going to be faced with on the job in the kitchen at work today or whatever show me from your law what directives should should uh, impinge upon my soul so that I would know what you would have me do with the degree of freedom that you've given me to bring honor and glory to you and to cause the name of the Lord to be reflected in my life 
Ah, this is what it means. This is what it means to serve God in our devotions. And this is what it means to see the place of the law of God in our personal devotions. Because, you see, unless your life and my life every day starts off with personal devotions of this nature, unless each day we again willingly offer ourselves to God, uh, we again, in the fullness and the ongoing infilling of the Spirit, willingly submit ourselves to God and His control, put ourselves again under His holy law, because it is the law of the God of the law and above the law, as the tool that He has given us for um, fashioning us into the image of His dear Son. Unless we come to God in that meek, spiritual, submissive, law-desiring attitude each day. How, if we omit those personal devotions, are we ever going to influence our family for Christ after that, and then influence our church for Christ, and influence the people at the business for Christ, and then influence society for Christ, and then influence politics for Christ? Christian reconstruction of the universe, which is indeed to be our goal, must start in the dedication to God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the individual believer, and must submit itself to the tools, such as the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which it has pleased our God to give us for our sanctification. The Westminster uh, Confession and Catechisms makes this very clear, that the way in which believers are to expect to be, uh, to be made even stronger believers is by their utilization of the means of grace that God has given us, namely the submission to the regular preaching and reading and studying of the Word of God and the use of the sacraments, the hiding of the law of God in our hearts and the practicing of it in our lives. Um, this is an appropriate time to close the first lecture and uh, to open this up for a few questions before taking a brief break. Do you have any specific methods that you can recommend in personal devotions and Bible Well, the problem with methods is that they can often become stereotyped, I find. Uh, but uh, I would just want to say this generally of course um, depending on one's background before one came to Christ if one is a complete pagan if one was a complete pagan before one came to Christ having had no knowledge of the scripture I would think it very important that one acquires a massive knowledge of the scripture as soon as possible if that were the case I would recommend the personal devotion start with reading or one or two chapters at least of the Bible in personal devotions uh, going through the Bible over the next couple of years two or three times before beginning to zero in on individual Bible texts in other words do telescopic Bible study for a while before you start doing microscopic Bible study I think one thing that gets a lot of Christians who have come from pagan backgrounds derailed is when they do not first do telescopic Bible study but when uh, well-meaning evangelicals grab hold of them and pump them full of John 3.16 and, uh, and Acts uh, 16.31 uh, to the exclusion of everything else in the Bible not always wittingly and, and that really leads to a rather truncated perspective on the totality of revelation that God has given us in the Bible so my thought would be from a pagan background having been converted to use the telescope massively before beginning to use the microscope um, and then having become telescopically established one can then take out the microscope but the problem with the microscope is that it can become a hobby horse <laughs> uh, the beauty of the telescope is you've got to move on if you do Genesis 1 and 2 this morning you've got to do Genesis 3 and 4 tomorrow morning and Genesis 5 and 6 the next morning and you don't get stuck with the hobby horse you see 
which is the problem of the microscope. Although the more you use the microscope, it's like looking at a snowflake <laughs> through a microscope, the more you stand back in amazement uh, at the greatness of Almighty God in the microcosmos, just as much as you would in the macrocosmos. Um, I would then suggest that having exposed oneself to the reading of God's word to be prefixed by a short prayer for illumination not a long prayer studying the Bible carefully and I think underlining it and I think reading through the whole Bible in the order in which it is printed in your Bible starting in the book of Genesis a good plan would be to start working through Genesis in the morning and from that then on in your mornings going on to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in that order but in the evening perhaps starting with Matthew and then after that going on with Mark, Luke and John and so forth in other words try and get a well-rounded spiritual diet that's important, don't ride the hobby horse and then while reading it and savouring it uh, after reading it the devotions need not be terribly long except I would suggest that particularly at the beginning of one's spiritual life they, they should be made long because when you're spiritually starved you're emaciated you've just gotten out of Satan's concentration camp you're a living skeleton weighing 80 pounds it's remarkable you're alive at all but when you've gotten back to the weight and the plumpness that uh, you would have had had you not been a sinner or almost that then of course you can reduce the, t the diet and watch it and uh, re even restrict the intake of the Bible but the point is to concentrate on what you're doing while you're doing it and then after that each morning the reading of the Bible to pray and in one's prayers at the beginning of the prayer to concentrate on the godness of God his majesty, his power, his dominion his aseity rather than say Lord give me this, give me that, give me the other, give me this for Christ's sake, Amen worship God because he's God <laughs> because this is what Jesus says we must do when you pray, pray in this way uh, uh, thy kingdom come hallowed be thy name, thy will be done and only after that, give me my daily bread for give me my <laughs> debts and so forth um, and then in one's prayer to reflect and to tell God about what we have just read immediately prior to that in the Bible I really don't know that I'd want to give any more specifics than that. One can go into other methods, uh, doing character studies of the Bible, life of Abraham, um, as it goes through the whole Bible, but as I look at the church today, by and large, I think there's a real dearth of knowledge of the Bible, just in its historical flow. And so this is what I personally would want to concentrate on most massively to start with. All right, we ready to take a break or any other questions before we do? All right, let's break for uh, about five or six minutes. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, 
which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.